0: Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor, and in today's show, we're going to be talking about banking as a service with a particular focus on the US market. As we know, bank as a service enables true embedded finance, which we estimate is a market that would be worth 3.6 trillion US by 2030. Today, we want to dig deeper into this red hot topic, which is particularly heating up in the US. And to do so, I'm joined by some of the very best in the industry. First up, we have Omri Dahan, uh, Chief Revenue Officer at Marquetta. Omri, how are you doing, sir? I am good. How are you? Really well, sir. Really well. Um, looking forward to getting into all things Bank as a Service, a subject you know a little bit about. Excited to do it. And joining us as well, we have Sankit Patak, who's CEO of Synapse. Sankit, how are you doing, sir?
1: I'm doing good. How are you?
0: Really, really well. Again, opportunity to talk about banks as a service. Such a hot subject right now and, and great guests to be doing it with. Um, and last but by no means least from our external guests, uh, Nigel Verdon, who's CEO at RailsBank. How are you doing, Nigel?
2: Hi, Simon. Um, please meet sure you thanks for the your invitation.
0: You're very welcome, sir. And uh, by no means least, uh, we have, of course, my colleague and banks as a service nerd as well, Mel Stringer. How are you doing, Mel?
3: Hello, very well. Very excited to be on the show with all these amazing guests. Oh, yeah, quite quite
0: the stuff that I'd guessed. Um, but I guess um, we should offer them the opportunity to give us the elevator pitch. Um, we we guys we have you all down as as a service providers in the bank as a service space. Um, but can you explain a little bit more? Um, let's let's do reverse order. So I'm going to start with Nigel. Uh, remind everybody who uh, Rails Bank is and what it enables people to do.
2: Yes, yeah, so Rails Bank is a yeah, bank as a service provider. And our value proposition uh, to to customers, which are either startups or their existing brands, is to enable anybody to go into financial services, whether it's offering cards, whether it's offering credit, whether it's doing insurance. Uh, we have a platform and regulation to enable them to do that.
0: Phenomenal, uh, Omri. How about yourself?
4: Thank you, Simon. So, Marquette doesn't really pitch itself as banking as a service. We think of more. Uh, think of ourselves more as a infrastructure. Provider and a platform provider to enable modern card issuing and, by extension, modern money movement. And so, while we don't offer, you know, kind of user experiences or anything of that nature, we don't go all the way up to the client side, as uh, as the techies might say. Uh, we do provide a wide range of APIs and plugins so that uh, tech-enabled enterprises can build amazing
0: card products. And I think that API first thing is absolutely uh, a, a real trend um, that we're, we're seeing people double click on. Thank uh, uh, How about yourself? Remind everybody about Synapse.
1: Synapse again is a US focused uh, financial infrastructure company, um, US today. Um, and by and large, what we do is we give people uh, um, API products that are fully managed behind the scenes in financial services industry. Right. So if you want to, uh, if you want to open up. Uh, or launch a neo banking product for consumers or businesses, you can do that with Synapse. If you want to do credit building loans, you can do that with Synapse. If you want to do charge cards, you can do that with Synapse. Um, um, All these deposit or credit products, um, if you want to build and you're not a bank yourself, we give you uh, the regulatory regulatory framework, the compliance framework, and also the tech infrastructure, all extended as an API um, so that you can just focus on building out Your customer service and your customer experience uh, while auditing the infrastructure on financial services side to us.
0: Pretty, pretty good mix of stuff. Well, thanks everybody for giving us the background. I want to talk about a little bit about the US market, um, and and I don't know who wants to take this first. Maybe Mel, I'll throw it over to you if uh, if you brushed up on your on your Durban amendment. But um, I'm I'm really interested in the various differences we see between Europe and the US, and and particularly around the difference in in interchange. Do you want to just remind everybody what interchange is and why that might be important to somebody who's doing card issuing?
3: Yeah. So interchange is the fee that the merchant would actually pay the bank or the, um, the issuer. And um, in the US, I think it was um, as part of Dodd-Frank, uh, there is this ruling called the Durban Amendment. And it basically says that um, it's exempting financial institutions with less than um, $10 billion in assets from having to have a cap on their interchange. But for, for uh, institutions that are larger than that, I think the cap is something like um, 0.05% of um, the transaction plus uh, a small. Additional fee of twenty-one cents. I think, if I um, if I read that correctly.
0: Yeah, it's certainly capped, and the percentages are are lower for the uh, ones above ten billion than they are uh, below it, which has changed the market. And Omri, do you think that that is is kind of a key moment in what's enabled a lot of neobanks and uh, digital banks to to come to market? I know um, you have customers across the spectrum that are both neobanks and non uh, in that space. Do you, do you think that changed the economic model a little bit?
4: Yeah, I think it's actually the key moment. Uh, if you think back in 2010, prior to 2010, if you think about what was known as the prepaid market in the United States, it was largely focused on gift and loyalty uh, plus GPR, general purpose reloadable cards, uh, which was somewhat of a predatory product. Uh, if you think about the fees that were, were were part of that product, you'd have to go to a Walmart or a su- supermarket and you'd pay five dollars of cash to load up a $100 card or $200 card. Um, Plus there were fees uh, on the card itself if you didn't use it over a certain period of time. So after 2010, you had all of these basic Midwestern agricultural lending banks, some of which are in your report, basically say, wait a minute, there could be another revenue stream here for us and that's in payments. Um, And you started to see, the emergence of something that in the States we call a program manager and the program manager, uh, effectively, uh, sits on top of that bank. I think you outlined it really nicely in your report and tries to build some technology and sell that technology to brands and those brands go to market and user experiences. Uh, all of that is enabled by the unregulated interchange of those banks under, uh, under 10 billion that's the simple version of the story it gets a lot more complicated from there which we're happy to dive into as you like but uh that's how i see it
0: no i, I think that's the, a great sort of scene setter and thank you i just wondered if there's anything you wanted to add in terms of you know where the market's gotten to and where we sit to today because it's, it's kind of broader than cards now i think some of these smaller banks have recognized uh, different opportunities
1: yeah totally so um Durban is quite an interesting regulation because it really allowed small banks to lay in the debit space, right? So uh, uh, Durban, for instance, only caps the debit interchange and credit uh, um, is, is is fair game for larger banks. Um, but what it's allowed um, pretty much all these small banks to do is not only start playing in your regular payment processing like ACH and acquiring, which is uh, third-party card processing, but um, but it opened up this new revenue stream, which was essentially, if you want to hold deposit accounts on your balance sheet, uh, we will essentially give you, uh, um, uh, you can also issue cards on top of then that would give you additional source of revenue. Um, now, once you open up this, like what what I like to call a deposit hub, then things become quite interesting because now you have this customer uh, uh, that has deposits with you. The payroll comes in, uh, there's some predictability into the revenue stream. Um then you can do a couple of things. Like if it turns out you want to keep your balance sheet limited, you can you can you can factor and share deposits. You can move deposits off to another bank. And now you essentially are making money not just on the interchange revenue, but pre-COVID you would also make money on the deposit stream that would come in. Um and created quite interesting business models for not just the bank, but also the fintech company that was bringing in those customers. Um, And since you see more banks kind of like starting to get into like short-term lending space. So like once you have this customer sitting on the deposit hub, then the next thing you could do is you have some predictability on their payroll. You can tie that into some kind of a short-term credit you can give them. Uh, Plus a lot of modern issuer processors, Marketa being one of them, Synapse being one of them now, essentially with endpoints like just-in-time funding, instant auth, you really open up decisioning as to last minute if you want to fund a transaction, uh, either through credit or either through some some alternate source, you can really do that well. So it created this infrastructure for the deposit hub. But once you open up or expose your balance you sheet to start taking in these deposits, um, then there are just so many other opportunities that come from it. Uh, um, and there are A lot of small banks that have essentially played into that space, which has been quite interesting to watch.
0: Yeah, it's been interesting to see the small banks come into and recognise that opportunity and be the first to benefit from it. But we we will we'll get into you know sort of who else might be playing in that space soon. I I just want to throw it to Nigel before we do though, because Nigel, you, you're a veteran of the industry and in and, uh, and from a global perspective, how for for a European listener, how would you separate some of the major differences? I think Durban's one big piece. Are there any other things that you see as you look at the U.S. market specifically?
2: Yeah, it's uh. Uh, it's pretty much near zero interchange, except for certain cases in, in Europe. Uh, negative interest rates on euro, on euro deposits and and things. So, uh, what we see, and this is what we're also bringing to the US, is uh, working with customers to develop business models that work around uh, actual value add rather than the line of interchange, because uh, the future is not bright, as people there's an advertising campaign uh, on Orange here a few years ago. So it, it's uh, and then you got sustainable uh, business models, and uh, if you look into banking uh, as a uh, and uh, and financial services in general, uh, especially on the deposit side and and the general neobank thing, the, the the money to make is actually in credit and always has been. Mm. and
0: it's interesting that uh, in the US market because of Durbin a lot of Neos have potentially been able to bootstrap a business on the exchange free line it's a but- g-
2: great thing to do uh, my buddies uh, launched uh, Bank Simple I was an uh, indirect investor in there through Antimus uh, years ago and so I remember them going through that whole journey uh, at, that, at that time and uh, it's a, great, it's a great bootstrapping thing, but it's not, I don't think it's a sustainable business uh,
0: at all. Which we now see Varo and Chime, and of course in, in Europe, we saw Monzo as well, kind of moving from that interchange-first cards model and now trying to move into the, the credit model by, by getting licenses. So it's that sort of journey and in, in the life of a, of a neobank is, is an interesting one to watch. Mel, what are your reflections as you, as you listen to the folks here around the, the changing nature of the opportunity in the U.S. market?
3: Yeah, it's interesting um, what you say actually about the lifespan even of um, potentially the small banks that um, might be happening upon this innovative or seemingly innovative business model to partner with fintechs um, and to take a bigger slice of that interchange um, interchange fee. But I think generally the market is really exciting in the US at the moment um, and particularly, I guess, timeliness um, of everything that's happening with respect to um, COVID, people having to um, pivot their businesses, um, become a bit more, you know, digital. Um, and there's, there's definitely more appetite. And you can see that playing out in, um, in the stock market, actually. So a number of different um, businesses have had tremendous stock gains this year, um, not least like Shopify, for example, uh, which I think is up one hundred and seventy percent. And I think that's testament to the number of small businesses that that need to um, to pivot their business models to survive. Um, and then of course, you've got uh, companies like you know PayPal and Amazon and Apple um who are also doing really well and uh they're obviously announcing these deals with uh with larger financial institutions like um you know, Google with Citibank and Apple. Um, Apple with, yeah, with Goldman Sachs. So really surprising, uh, surprising partnerships. So yeah, a lot to look out for.
0: It's a compelling market at the moment, but you mentioned some interesting companies there, which which makes me think, I mean, Sankir, uh, I'm going to throw it to you, like, who is the customer here? Is it just the neobanks or are there other people sort of coming into this space and seeing offering banking as a revenue line?
1: yeah i think that's a very interesting question before the podcast i was speaking with someone and the question was like what is financial services and who is fintech now um and i think it's fair to define any like the way i say this is um anyone who wants to build their experience around financial services either part of their experience all of it right uh, so companies as simple as like uh, um uh, PayPal, right? Like, makes sense. They're in financial services, betterment in financial services. Apple, out of nowhere, wants to build a portion of their experience, uh, uh, which ends up being an engagement engine more than a revenue source, in my opinion, uh, into financial services. Um, and from there, they would add more value added services on top of that, right? Like, similar things would happen, like, uh, uh, Microsoft Office did a deal with Plaid just to allow people to be able to import their transaction data. Where does it go from there? Does it go ill pay? Most likely, right? Like um, So that becomes a part of the value proposition. Uh, the new battle between uh, Epic Games and Apple, where Epic Games wants to control their payment infrastructure. Um, so all of these things are quite interesting. And Epic Games, by no means the fintech company, but um, they would want to control this. And I don't, I think, I think the revenue is only a small portion of the equation. I think what what money is able to bring into the ecosystem is engagement at a much different level. Um, uh, engagement that is like it's like it might be a better monetization strategy than ads, um, and it might be more engaging than them as well. That's 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 a way far out theory, but I still like. I had the theory like a few years ago and I like keep on still believing that I feel like this is more so like a social network uh, um, that is kind of like engaging uh, with with cash at its at its core. But the fun thing that's going to happen is not just I think this is just the beginning, like it's just the basic infrastructure and layer. on top of that, the kind of stuff that all these companies would build, for instance, something as simple as like subscription management is what Apple's built on top of their card. And that's quite meaningful. Um, and then what do people like to buy? How do people save money? Uh, um, how do they want to interface with friends and family around financial services and finances in general? Uh, I think it, it can extend out of there. So, in my mind, revenue is a small portion of this equation. The other piece is like, Um, the bet is you're going to start making your customer more sticky and then you either have an entire product and service that by and large is thematically financial services or you have e-product and services and financial services brings in a new level of engagement into it,
0: it it's interesting that shopify think about uh, financial services dr- helping drive their flywheel everything from uh their, their capital business that helps you know kind of those businesses grow so they see more transaction volume to uh, to where they're going around the cards and the spend management and so on and that that sort of it, it really is around engagement and in fact that's if you could argue tencent and wechat Kind of where they are is payments is not their biggest revenue line by a long shot. But actually, by having that data, they're able to drive so much more into the gaming side and into the ad side as a result, which are their key revenue lines. So it's going to be an interesting one to watch. Um, Omri, you, you have customers like Uber, Instacart, DoorDash, Square. Like, there's, there's folks there that aren't sort of banks. So where do you, where do you reflect on some of Sankik's comments there? Do you think there is an engagement um, business case here?
4: Without a doubt. Uh, There's an engagement use case here. And the way I think about it is, if you think about the basis of competition for financial services, for commerce, for um, cards, for any of the things that we've been talking about for years, and, and just maybe banking in general, for years, the basis of competition was some combination of some big company size brand that you trust, ubiquity of branch networks, where your parents banked uh, you know, what was done at the local, at the local, uh, high street or mall, uh, wherever the, wherever the branch was and rewards, right. Those were the things that banks competed on. Um, I remember in the, in the late, was it the late is the early aughts. So 2002, 2005, that, that time, uh, I was living in New York and, Literally the Upper West Side of New York, which was famous for more local businesses, a lot of SMBs, a lot of car- businesses with character. There was a bank on every corner. Uh, There's just an explosion of branch networks, and you know, the locals weren't too happy about it, but uh, that's what the banks were doing to win your business. That basis of competition has shifted. Some of it is Durbin, but I think a lot of it is basically the ubiquity of the internet, the ubiquity of mobile, the rise of millennials and their em- you know kind of emerging wealth, at least until the COVID recession started. Um, it has shifted to user experience uh, and social grafting. And how often do I check in on, on Instagram? How often do I check in on Facebook? Um, you know, How do I get access to an extraordinary user experience for financial services, for where I shop, for where I buy, for where I engage with, uh, that's going to be the the basis of competition. And when you see that happening, you talked about some of the customers that we have, you see that they're, they're winning on user experience, they're not winning on obviously branch networks, not, not even in the game. Uh, Some of them have rewards, and that's part of the equation still, of course, but they're winning on the ubiquity of how often do I open the Uber app, how often do I I engage with Cash App to, to trade, whether that's Bitcoin or that's stocks, or just to see where my money is, maybe I can get my direct deposit from my payroll on there. And what's happening as a result is those user experiences are being driven by developers and engineers, and those engineers want to work in a particular way. They want to see... APIs, they don't want to talk to a human being, they want to be able to read the documentation, know what to do, and start imagining wonderful experiences, then they want to get into a sandbox and start playing around with it. And start building and rapidly iterating on their products, uh, so that they can bring something to market that's that's kind of with the market and moves as quickly as the market. So if you start, you know, kind of leveraging that out in time, what you see is a, a legacy world in a legacy ecosystem built on legacy technology that doesn't really move very quickly. It doesn't evolve very quickly. If you think about the, the mobile apps of the big banks, right, you're getting an update twice a year, four times a year, something like that. You take a cash app, you take a chime, you take a Venmo, they're in continuous deployment. You're seeing updates in some cases on a daily basis, let alone the official updates that you see in the app store, et cetera. So how are you supposed to compete when the, the, the basis of competition has moved from legacy, waterfall, uh, and, you know, a series of things that mattered in the old days, not mattering as much anymore? How are you supposed to compete?
0: Omri, um, just to play devil's advocate briefly, though, we, did, we have seen stats during the pandemic that, you know, of the new digital account opening, the incumbents saw- are getting the, the lion's share of that still rather than the, the, the digital banks. But I think there's something interesting about that API space that you were talking about. Mel, I know you wanted to, to jump in briefly on, on how that differs. And I think what Omri was talking about there on the infrastructure side.
3: Yeah, so um, I really loved what Omri was saying. And um, I think that, you know, if you look at uh, the Marquetta website, even their documentation speaks to developers um, and they're saying they've got like flexibility and open APIs and real-time webhooks. I mean, that's even for a product manager, that's like, oh, thank God, because you just know that it's going to enable engagement and, you know, immediate interaction with uh, with clients, just with the architecture. And I think the older banks that you may wish to partner with historically just couldn't couldn't do that and ultimately if you are um you know fintech if you are trying to build something you want to um partner with a company that will enable you to have these immediate real-time responses with your customers so that it then informs you to be able to offer um you know better products like um i guess in purchase credit, or you know, um, point of sale financing, SME lending, all of that good stuff.
0: And I guess Nigel, you guys uh, would, would align to the, the API first view. Do you um, sort of follow Sankit's thinking that um, it's not just neo banks that are customers, or who is the customer?
2: Uh, do I have to just take it back slightly? The, I think the fundamental trend we're all saying is uh, the dirty secret in every single bank. And financial services, the underlying product is totally undifferentiated, which is going back to the basis of competition. A deposit account, current account, checking account, whatever you call it, is the same from anybody. Uh, and uh, a faster payment, an ACH payment, you get it from us, you get it from uh, Barclays. It's the same thing. There's nothing differentiated about it. And uh, there's a wonderful stat: J.P. Morgan Chase spends more money marketing uh, like deposit accounts, uh, checking accounts, and cards. Uh, and then Apple does globally in the, in the US because it's such an undifferentiated product. So, what what we have now is, uh, and I think you guys at Monzo and everything like that, that's sort of like leading edge in it and say uh, Bank Simple and others, was uh, you, you move the value away from the undifferentiated product to the, to the experience. And I think that's phase one, is where the, the experience is the uh, uh, is the advantage over the undifferentiated product and also where you market that experience. And then uh, that has seen the, the shift in the current uh, wave of, of neobanks. Uh, the, the, the challenge they have uh, in, say, in the UK market, uh, not so much here, uh, potentially also in the US, is a lot of that deposit base sits on uh, non quality balance sheets. Uh, which is a major issue. And you just seen that in the wildcard, card the debacle, for, for example. Uh, and if you look in times of, uh, stress and everything, why digital engagement on, uh, uh legacy banks has gone up is because they're centers of safety. Uh, my great, great grandfather was in the founders of ANZ Bank back in the 1850s and a big global Australian bank. And, uh, their deposits go up and they haven't, uh, they've still kept all of money. So the banks, the, the legacy banks who have got long-standing brands have a massive advantage in this this, this market. So if we've gone to uh, uh, basically the experience wave, I think next wave is embed, embedding. It's about transactions are not worth anything for a transaction. They're worth something for the data and what they tell you, and that's super important. And engagement. I'll give you a, an example of how that's used. Uh, one of our clients, uh, Singapore Life, in in, in Singapore. Uh, they, they, uh, uh, and they're shortened out to sing life. Just so it's not so much of a giveaway. Uh, and they, uh, uh th- they sell life insurance policies and life insurance is a fairly crappy product. It, uh, uh, you touch a customer once and then you touch them again when they die. So two t- customer touch points, or you get a phone call or a call center when I've lost my password or something. Well, that's not real customer engagement. What we did with uh, SingLife, it was more than like Life, uh, we just happened to be in the room at the time, uh, was they came up with how to change an uh, insurance policy, a life term insurance policy, into a deposit account. Because it looks the same if you look at the maths and how you treat it on a balance sheet. In accounting, it's all pretty much the same thing. And so with that deposit account, they say, well, can't we put a card against it? So we launched the SingLife card and now if they have engagement every day, they put liquidity of the balance sheet into the life insurance policy. And they can see they're getting much more value back from this uh, engagement. And the deposit base is flying up because they market it as a, as a wealth product as well.
0: Nigel, you're so spot on. I, I, in the report, I don't know if you saw, um, we did a double flywheel. So there was the, always historically the flywheel of balance sheet, which is uh, the more balance sheet I've got, the more I can lend, the more I can lend, the more profitable I become, the more secure I'd be seen as in the market, which again, attracts deposits from that security aspect. And then the experience flywheel is really around the better my experience, the more referrals I get, the lower my cost of acquisition, um, the more users I get, the better experience I have and so on. And See this flywheel. And it seems like the early phase of NeoBanks focused really on fixing the experience side that, that the banks hadn't got. And what we see is the opportunity to bring together that double flywheel or almost the figure of eight, which is the balance sheet and the experience, but with the providers in the middle really being that glue between the people best at experience and the people. Um, best at balance sheet which speaking of which I'm just going to very quickly plug some stuff from 11fs in an ad break and we'll be we'll be right back so let's let's get to the ads now as you might have heard by now we wrote a report uh, banking as a service is deconstructing the banking stack it enables brands to embed finance much more easily and tailor financial products to specific customer needs this is presenting new opportunities for specialized providers and offers banks potentially extra revenue streams. Download our report for a comprehensive, no BS view of what banking as a service is and what it means for the industry. Head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service. That's bit.ly banking as a service, and that's all in lowercase. Fintech Insider listeners, we need you. Uh, if you listen to the show uh, regularly, or if this is your first episode, uh, we'd love it if you could take a couple of minutes to give us your feedback and help us with the future of the show. We want to know what you like and what you don't. Uh, and because we make this podcast for you, our listeners, we want to make it better and better. So please take a moment to visit bit.ly forward slash survey. That's bit.ly forward slash survey. It would mean so, so much to us. Alrighty, back on with the show. Nigel, before we got to the break, we were just talking about that double flywheel, and you you wanted to jump in on the point there?
2: Yeah, sure. So there's an economics overlay to that, too. Uh, I think one of the challenges, especially for smaller banks, uh, over the next uh, uh, few, especially post-COVID, because they've got no interest rate environments, cheap cost of capital, no returns anywhere. Uh, you've got a massive challenge if you're running a your balance sheet. Uh, and the key uh, key thing there is the cost-income ratios of these guys are totally out of whack. And there's a lovely Gartner report that says uh, 80% of legacy financial services will be non-existent by 2030. And whether you believe it or not, it's it's a different matter. But Gartner did some thinking, put it on a bit of paper. So uh, the big issue is uh, it's uh, most legacy banks about three fifty dollars uh, to acquire a deposit account or deposit. And that's about $250 X lending LTV on that, on that uh, money. And if you just run the maths on it, you can show why most uh, banks in the world uh, have a major cost income uh, uh, ratio issue. Uh, if you look at fintech world and you, you look at, so if I if you can bring this together, and I've had long conversation many balance sheets in the US, larger balance sheets, not small ones, And uh if I say so I can originate you a deposit at ten bucks a deposit, so I get you a a liability which is deposit, I can originate you an asset, which is a loan, at ten bucks a loan, and do all the underwriting for you. Wouldn't you prefer that in the economic side than your loss making on everything else? And then you can do some more interesting things. So I can fix part of the uh the broken part of legacy banking, which is the, the uh acquisition of the deposit is too much. And and also uh, if you can work with the ecosystem, uh, with infrastructure providers like all three of us around the table here, to bring in people who are excellent at the experience and excellent at uh, acquisition and excellent at, as uh, Monza's spread out, tribal uh, marketing or marketing to a cohort or tribe, uh, you then got, uh, you don't need the brand to go through, but the brand of a JP Morgan deposit is an amazing thing to put, uh, put through. Uh, and I would go to that fintech who had JP Morgan deposits, uh, and put then if I can JPMorgan get the ten bucks a deposit, it would be fantastic. Same as State Street or their balance sheet. Uh, you then uh, you, the brand is good, deposits are in the right place, because the consumer uh, really does have to question: Should I leave my money in a small bank that has major costing ratio issues and is likely to go bust, or do I put it in somewhere I trust who's got a big brand? And banks, traditional banks and legacy have a massive thing called brand that are never going to disappear anytime soon. But if we bring together, so that overlaying exactly on your two flywheels with the experience and the acquisition piece, you actually solve the fundamental thing, which is the, what the FinTech has been trying to strive since 2000 and sort of 8,009, uh, was the economics of the industry are broken. it needs to be restructured. And we can get that to restructure in a nice way because fintechs are never going to go into long-term balance sheet product like uh, mortgages and things because they just just don't have the skills. Uh, lending is still done very very well by banks. There's a, a friend of mine, uh, Ray Ferguson, who is the chief executive of Standard Chartered, a very dour Scotsman who started at sixteen as a bank teller, and think the biggest thing he learnt uh, from his mentor uh, when he was seventeen was uh, lending is very 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 easy. Getting the money back again is very, very, very hard, and you've got to be able to bring that data together. I think uh, the earlier one we were talking about, being access to data, gives you a high propensity to to, uh, less propensity to default type of uh, scenarios. And so, if we bring the data, uh, experts, the balance sheet, the expertise of lending together, we have a, a new industry which is powered by infrastructure players like ourselves. It's got all the, the, I said the Monzo twos, but it's also got the embedded finance in supermarkets and others where you can actually embed it into their customer experiences for data and everything else. But the money's still not held in say Sainsbury's it's held in uh, Barclays.
0: Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. There's there's a couple of questions that it makes me think about. Is do banks want to be the intel inside, and, and and are they willing to swallow that? And two, you know, are, are they ready for? Um, so uh, the SQL report, um, which I'm going to uh, leak the name of here, we're toying with the idea of um, balance sheet as a service. Right, there's there's something there in like running a balance sheet is really really hard, and actually where the money is made, but the front end of that is broken, not the back end. So there's some interesting stuff to play with there for sure. it uh, I, I saw so you wanted to. To jump in on a couple of those points. Um, what what resonated to you uh, from the conversation?
1: I think these two pieces are part of the story, but there's another piece to this as well, which again goes down to engagement, right? Like um, I think the user experience and the balance sheet, um, those two pieces need to be solid makes a whole lot of sense. And that's where when you build solid infrastructure products that don't just have great APIs, but also have uh, um, really great underlying infrastructure uh, um, around these pieces, it's quite helpful. But the third piece that's quite seminal and interesting is um, what Square Cash and Acorns did like few weeks ago. Like uh, you have Cardi engaging with their fans on Square Cash and you have Dwayne Johnson engaging with his fans on Acorns. Um, And I don't think it's a stretch to assume that these platforms transcend out, outside of Twitter um, in whatever social network that you can think of, Instagram, and this becomes another form of engagement with celebrities at the very least. Um, and that's that's just the starting point, right? Like in gaming, the celebrities are like money makers, people who just play a lot of games who are on Twitch, like uh, engaging with them, getting, getting some skin and merchandise through them, all these different things. Um, and that customer base, Actually doesn't care about the balance sheet piece. Like that customer base cares a whole lot about engaging with people they love and admire. and that's a very interesting part of the equation as well.
0: I, I completely agree, Sankit, that creator space and what they can really, really do if they had the ability to uh, find another way to engage. Omri, uh, um, how do you reflect on this conversation? And do you think there's uh, there's a role for big tech in some of this stuff?
4: For sure. I actually reflecting in two ways. So just maybe a couple of points here. The first one is going back to Nigel's point around banks offering basically undifferentiated differentiated products. Um, I, again, I'm reminded of... Uh, something that, for those of you who grew up in the '80s, you will remember, which is the mixtape. The mixtape was what lots of young, strapping uh, teenage boys like me uh, would make for you know potential girlfriends and try to bring all the wonderful songs that we love together in a special, bespoke, tailored tape that would win the hearts of uh, of, the, of the coeds. Um, and and we all made it for ourselves as well. We never really had the opportunity with banking to do that until now right? If you're a developer, you know, or if you start at the consumer level, at the consumer level, be it a user, a consumer user, or a business user, you kind of had to buy the whole album from the local bank. You had to buy lending where you got your, you know, your depository account, where you got your debit card, where you got your checking account, where you potentially got your mortgage and even potentially insurance and things like that. With modern APIs, with modern infrastructure, you now can basically make a mixtape. You can... Get an installment loan for a computer that you want to buy from a firm. You can get a small business loan from Cabbage. You can go and get your depository account at Cash App, you can trade on Robinhood, you can kind of make a mixtape of all the financial services that you want. That started at the, at the at the app layer and at the at the user layer. What you're seeing now is uh, providers like like us and, and, and the other folks on the call is providing that mixtape capability to the people who are building the apps. So now I can basically plug in services through different APIs, whether that be KYB or KYC services, risk management services, card services, banking services, ACH services from different providers, and I can build my own mixtape uh, as a developer uh, in a very modular way. I think that does exactly what Nigel was talking about to some extent, Masaka was talking about, which is allows tech companies, big, small, and in the middle, to Basically, build services that are bespoke for their, uh, you know, their business plan, their model, at a much lower cost.
0: They can make their own
4: mixtape. They can make their own mixtape.
0: In the report, I, I was going to use a metaphor that was nowhere near as good. We talked about it being modular, and we talked about moving from uh, sort of set menu to à la carte. But I'm, um, I think the mixtape thing is so much better. It's all yours. You can you can have it royalty free. Uh, we don't charge for
4: metaphors here. Um, so. The, the other thing I would say, you asked about big tech. I, look, I think the other way big tech plays here, and it goes right to the economics equation that Nigel was talking about, is keep in mind, most of these big tech players, they've already acquired a massive amount of users. So they've spent their cost of acquisition on bringing uh, you know, 50 million users to whatever, you know, Uber, Airbnb, uh, choose your big tech giant, right? They need to continue to monetize. What they've spent already, they need to continue to monetize that user base in one way or another. And financial services is a really simpler, a much simpler way of monetizing it than living in the world of uh, cars and bricks and mortar and logistics and you know, kind of financial services. In many ways, defies the laws of physics when it comes to LTV, and so giving them the tools to do that reduces their their cost of acquisition. Increases their LTV and allows them to create network effects both inside and outside of their ecosystem.
0: I love that, Omri, and I'm going to throw it to you um, just before we we wrap up and do the where's it, where's it in five five years time. Um, and I'm going to go round round the call for this uh, in a second. Um, but um, Mel, I just wondered before I throw back to Omri, uh, what are, what are your thoughts on the discussion so far?
3: Yeah, so I'm really interested to hear everybody talking about um, big tech. And um, it's sort of strangely reminiscent of how um, people might have talked about uh, the big financial banks before the financial crisis. I don't mean to be all like doom and gloom, but they seem to have a heck of a lot of power and the power play is sort of changing with respect to um, who's partnering with whom and uh, I noticed with some amusement um the other day that um Goldman Sachs actually had to uh, like really stress that they're the decision makers of who gets the um the apple card not Apple because Apple's got this um like anti fs slogan that's like created by Apple not a bank because their brand is so um so strong so it's sort of curious this role reversal i would say
0: Mm, it is interesting to watch and and on that basis omri i'm going to start with you um where do you see uh this whole api first space in five years um what, what do you think comes next
4: Tech's going to continue to be tech and push things forward on that front. I think the really interesting thing is what's going to happen to the 6,000, 7,000 banks in the United States that are currently chartered with all of those licenses and all of those deposits. You talked about kind of balance sheet as a service. Don't forget that in payments also, you've got membership of the principal membership of the networks, Visa, MasterCard, et cetera, as well as basically all of the regulatory work. And so I think the, you will see a massive, uh, Falling off of those banks, you will see the, the survivors being mostly the big ones, plus the kind of suburban payments banks that are able to turn their assets into those assets as a service, namely balance sheet, principal membership, and regulatory overhang. And tech will continue to push the push the thing forward. Where it goes in terms of uh, the. Uh, the, the banking infrastructure i think it's going to be a painful several years
0: for most of them <laughs> interesting stuff uh, nigel i want to throw it to you uh wh- where are we heading in the next five years what's uh what's your sort of 60 second version so i uh,
2: i believe again we're going to uh, there's going to be a ton of banks going out of business because of the cost side and we'll get service models uh that's what we're building because we're building uh uh, full-stack uh, regulation all the way down to the right into the scheme, whether it's Visa, MasterCard, Faster Payments, Swift, the whole lot, all the way through to the APIs to, to build stuff on top of. Uh, and so we see, uh, as AWS did with uh, with TIN and with data centers, uh, you can add they on-demand, it's a place that's been tested and hacked into by millions and millions of people, but it's robust. We see the same sort of thing emerging which is pretty much uh, which is we just uh, mention of uh of essentially balance sheet as a service banking as a service cards as a service credit as a service everything being then you build uh your banking experience on top of that so community bank literally becomes uh, an experience whether it's an in install in a branch experience or a mobile experience it's a, that's we build experiences engagement the risk management an origination uh, side of things. So we can see a lot of these, uh, there'll be larger consolidation, massive consolidation, of smaller banks. And then you'd either get niche banks or niche financial services or, or large. And the the middle ground will be the death zone, uh, very much like uh, uh, Kodak sat in for a while.
0: Indeed. So barbell of the market, the middle ground is, is the worst place to be. You either want to be small and specialist or uh, around a creator or around a community or a tribe, or you want to be massive. The the middle ground is the hardest place to be. In, in, interesting. Uh, as always, Nigel, I love your perspective. As a, as a former banker, it certainly resonates. But um, Sanke, I'm, I'm going to throw it to you as well for the five-year view. Uh, the You know you talked a lot about engagement, and I really love that point. Uh, you talked a little bit about creators. Do you see that space and um, and really engagement? engagement more than revenue from from sort of fintech as a service bank as a service
1: yeah uh, i think well let's let's focus on the end customer and then the infrastructure figures itself out because like that's where we're going to have to get to um i think there's going to be one i don't think most banks are going to die but that's 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 a side point um most small banks because their customer base is like quite uh, um elderly and entrenched so i think that's going to take longer than five years but on the consumer side i think the first thing you're going to need is uh more refined user experience you're going to need uh more automation money arrives and things happen um things happen around credit building things happen around lending things happen around uh, a checking account saving money insurance all that stuff um there's People are going to want to engage more with their friends, family, and influencers, but not just in a country, but globally. So that's going to push the envelope to global banking. Um, and there's going to be a tremendous amount of innovation on, on customer service. Uh, there, there just has to be, uh, because financial services are very complex. And if you really want to keep on pushing it up and up and up, you have to be able to give them great service. Um, So a lot of automation, a lot of financial advice and service uh, engagement that's primarily driven around global economics and global interactions. Um, And then a lot of innovation needs to happen um, on kind of like the metadata side for all this to happen as well, which is the data and the insights piece, because you can give very good financial advice with that. You can give very good customer service with that. uh, You can automate a whole bunch of stuff if you really understand the data underneath really well. Um, so that's what's going to happen over the course of the next five years. And to Mario's point, I think it's going to be quite painful for all of us uh, because we're just having to innovate quite rapidly, but exciting at the same time.
0: All right. Super exciting. Yeah, it's it's, it's uh, the infrastructure space has got a lot of interesting people doing uh, trying to solve these problems. So if nothing else, it's going to be uh, it's going to be great for somebody like me with kind of with, with the popcorn Mel. What are your final thoughts before we close this one out?
3: So I think in the next five years, um, we'll probably see the smaller US banks in the midterm doing uh, rather well, actually. And um, I imagine that we might actually see um, some in-state innovation if those smaller regional banks or credit unions um, can become a bit more technologically evolved or indeed partner with um, any of the three of you. Um, I think that there could be some localised um, innovation that we see. But then I also think that for um, fintech companies that want to provide a more uh, global or, um, I guess, a, a bigger service, um, the overhead might be actually on choosing which partner to go with and um and even though you you have efficiencies with um you know common languages and how you know apis are open and so on these days i think this um choice and fatigue of choice might result in some consolidation and so you might end up with leaders that are probably going to be the big tech companies say okay this partner this partner and this partner is the best um, and therefore it sort of monopolizes the market in that way. And everybody just wants to, uh, wants to emulate that success
0: interesting to watch it play i'm sure mel um that is all we've got time for folks uh this is the kind of conversation i could just keep having and then crack up on a wine and keep on going all night so it would be fun to do that but unfortunately we've got to end the podcast here um i just want to thank everybody for joining us uh Umri unfortunately has had to drop off so um uh, he would say that you can find out more about him at marketa.com i'm sure he would um and we'll we'll make sure he gets all of the uh all of the stuff in the show notes uh Sanket, how about yourself where do people find out more about synapse and what you guys are up to
1: yeah, just go to com and you'll find everything there. If you want to play with our APIs, go to docs.synapsify.com.
0: It's open and available. Thank you so much, Nigel. How about you? Uh, same. Goes to
2: www.railsbank.com. Uh, the APIs and the Real Money Sandbox, which don't even need to talk to us. Just click to read, and you can open a real bank account.
0: Great stuff, Nigel. And Mel, how about you?
3: Uh, you can find me at 11fs.com and also on LinkedIn.
0: Fantastic. Uh, as for me, you can find me at taylor on Twitter, or you can email me, simon, at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please remember to subscribe and leave us a review. It helps us uh, with the show. It helps make the show better, and it helps others find it too. Uh, speaking of making the show better, please remember to fill in our survey bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey bitlay fintech insider survey. As always, if you want to join in, you can find us search for 11fs or fintech insider. Thank you so much, and goodbye for now.